Amen. And you may be seated. Good morning to you all. It's exciting to be here. Finally, we've been on a, a bit of a path for a bit, trying to figure out where we would be worshiping, and we're thankful this morning uh, for God's provision that we're able to gather and gather together, and even on a snowy day, um, able to have a great group of folks gathered together with us, and of course, those who are gathered with us online this morning as well. We're, we're excited to be able to come together and praise as we have, uh, to be able to spend some time in the Word together, and then be able to come to the table together in a few minutes. So, um, We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue to do that today as we're going to uh, start at the very end of Mark uh, chapter 6. And as we dive into the passage this morning, we're going to see the Pharisees again. The Pharisees are going to be back, all right? And if you remember them from earlier in Mark, they've had a couple of altercations with Jesus. Um, they've accused him of eating with tax collectors and sinners as though that's a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, they've complained about his disciples doing work on the Sabbath. And then the, the very last time we saw them in chapter 3... They were actually, um, they got very upset at Jesus because he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Do you remember how it ended? Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. And so now what we're going to see, they've come back. They're about to interact with Jesus again and how are they going to continue on that path of trying to destroy Jesus? Let's look to the word starting at verse 53 of chapter 6. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in the villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders." And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hearts? And he said to them, Why did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips and their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and his mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And these things come from within and they defile a person. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Would you open it up before us this morning? Would you impress it upon our hearts? Uh, Would you ultimately help us as we go through this text this morning to encounter our Savior, to be reminded of our need for him, and ultimately come running to the cross? Oh, we pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sure you've been there before. We all have where you start getting some symptoms of something. I don't know what it may be. And maybe even as with the latest COVID thing, and many of you have thought that you've had it multiple times, you you go online and you start Googling and and you try to figure out what is it that's going on with me. And inevitably, it's some terrible, terrible disease, right? There's something terrible, terrible going on. Or you even go to a doctor and they tell you what it is, what's going on, and then, but then you keep Googling and you say, no, I think I've got something far, far worse. Uh, sometimes we can be pretty terrible at this thing of self-diagnosis, right, of thinking somehow we can diagnose ourselves. In a sense, we have this happening in our passage this morning. The Pharisees, they're, they're, they're coming to Jesus, and as they're coming to Jesus, they think they have the diagnosis of a spiritual problem. They think they have everything figured out. But we got to remember who it is that they're coming to. They're coming to the great physician. They're coming to the great physician who can truly diagnose the source of spiritual problems, unlike the self-diagnosis of the Pharisees. So let's see it this morning as we dive in. Um, at the end of chapter 6, we, we see Jesus, and there, he, there's great fame all around him. Everywhere he goes, people are just gathered. They literally, our text says they go running to him, Right? And as we saw in verse 56, as many as touched it, they they were just seeking to touch the edge of his garments, as many as touched it were made well. And so he's got this incredible fame. Everybody's coming to him, but now we see some other people, a different group coming to him, right? We see the Pharisees. And and the Pharisees, they're they're coming to accuse him. They're, in a sense, if you want to think about it, they're kind of taking him to court. They're filing a lawsuit against him in a way. And what is it that they're seeing? Look at verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, I don't know if you have any of those relatives. Maybe you actually are one of those relatives. Surely not, though, right? You know those hyper-vigilant ones about washing of hands? You know that they got to make sure that everybody at the table has washed their hands before they've come to dinner? Okay, not that coming to dinner with clean hands is a bad thing, okay, don't get me wrong, 
but you know what I'm talking about, that hyper-vigilant kind. And, and now we, we live in a day where we probably find ourselves probably washing our hands more than we ever had and using hand sanitizer more than, than we ever had. What's interesting is this is not at all what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. The way we think about coming to our hand, table with clean hands is vastly different than what's going on in Mark. And, and Mark actually has to give us a little bit of, of commentary here to help us to understand what's going on. Look at verse 3. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. This washing of hands has absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. Okay? It has nothing to do with, with, with getting whatever it is on your hands off. It's all a ritualistic cleansing. In fact, they probably used very, very little water. And they would just pour that little bit of water over so it would run over their, the whole of their hands. And with just that, their hands were now ritually cleansed. And that's what they were concerned about. Now, parents, you may not like this. Moms, in particular, you may not like this. But the Bible nowhere commands us to wash our hands before we come to dinner. Okay? Now, kids, don't hear for a moment that I'm telling you that that doesn't mean that when your mom tells you you've got to wash your hands, you've got to wash your hands, okay? But the Bible doesn't command this. this. This isn't a commandment of the Bible. In fact, this commandment that they are now putting on Jesus' disciples is not a command of Scripture. Nowhere did, were the Jews commanded to wash their hands, even ceremonially cleanse their hands before they came to a meal. Now, what's going on here? There, a few hundred years before Jesus' time, a book had been collated and put together called the Mishnah, which kind of collated a lot of the teachings of the rabbis and stuff that came before. And, and, and part of what was collated in there was lots of rules and regulations about how one was to carry themselves. And in fact, a quarter of this book is spent primarily telling people how they could remain clean how they could remain pure before God, okay? And, and so much of, uh, of what they're doing is concerned with that. And I'm sure many of us, we, we've read through, tried to start reading through the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and inevitably Leviticus becomes a bit of a stumbling block for us, right, as we try to read through and try to understand what's going on. And uh, much of that book is dedicated to this idea of cleanliness and how one can be clean, how one can be pure uh, before God. And so you find things... Um, in, in those ceremonial laws about cleanliness, like one of the things that the priests were supposed to do before they could serve in the temple or the tabernacle, what'd they have to do? They had to ceremonially wash their hands before they started their service, okay? And so what do the Pharisees do? What do, do many of these rabbis, what do they do? They say, well, we want to be ceremonial clean too. So they start creating all sorts of other laws about how to remain clean. So God never said you had to wash your hands before you come to dinner. But what the Pharisees do and, and the other religious leaders do is, is they start adding to God's law and they say, well, if the priests need to do that, well, we need to, we need to be clean too. We want to be clean like they're clean. And so suddenly they've added to the law. Now, there's a big problem here because what they are doing, particularly with like this washing their hands thing is, is they're completely misunderstanding, in a sense, the, the cleanliness rules. What they're doing is actually that the Pharisees are turning this cleanliness thing into something that they can actually do. It's, it becomes something that they could actually obtain. They could wash their hands and become clean before God, whereas that's not the purpose of those rules in the Old Testament. 
Those laws were, were, were set there actually to help people to understand you can't cleanse yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You need something outside of yourself to come in and, and to wash you clean. And so that's why in those Levitical laws and all, we, we see all these sacrifices and everything. What are, we, what are the people constantly reminded of? You can't do it. You can't keep yourself clean and you need something outside of you to come in to cleanse you. And what were the Pharisees doing? They figured out a way that they could cleanse themselves. They were, in a sense, removing the need for God's grace in their life. So they come to Jesus, verse 5. What do they do? They say, why? Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They come at him and, and... it's not really the disciples that they're concerned about. They're really concerned with accusing Jesus, right? And they're holding Jesus responsible for the behavior of their disciples. But do you see what they acknowledge right in there? They, why do your disciples it's not walk according to God's law, to the Scripture, but according to the tradition of the elders, right? To the traditions, of the elders. It wasn't scripture that they were concerned with. It's these other things that they had piled upon it. And we need to ask for a moment, why are the Pharisees at this point, why are they so upset? Why are they pursuing Jesus like this at this moment? Why why are they so concerned about the washing of hands? One author says something that I think is helpful at this point. This is what Anne Lamont says. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And in a sense, isn't this what the Pharisees are doing? Okay? They're intent upon destroying Jesus. They despise what he he stands for. They're upset with everything that he he believes in. Because what he's doing by coming in, the, the, the good news that he is preaching is destroying the foundations of the religion that they've built up. A religion that somehow says that they can do it. That they can clean themselves up. And they can make sure that you're clean too. And so it upsets this religion. It's kind of like what Paul elsewhere talks about, you know, the folly of the cross. You know, how how the world struggles with the good news of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't tell you how to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and and do it. The, The gospel says, no, you can't do it on your own. You need something foreign. You need something outside of you coming in to cleanse you and and to wash you. But the default mode of the human heart, of all of our hearts, let's not miss this, the default mode of all of our hearts is believing somehow we can do it. That somehow we can cleanse ourselves or, or yeah, we need Jesus, but we need to help him out some too, right? We, We think somehow this is something that we can do. And, and what's amazing, you know, when, when most of, if, you, if you're a believer here this morning, when, when you started to believe, you probably embraced the, hey, God, you came to God and you said, I can't do this. I need you. I can't save myself. And you, you, you embrace this incredible good news of being saved by grace alone, right? But then what do we all tend to do as we move along? We, we begin to add things to that, and, and we begin to struggle, and we begin to, yeah, I believe that, but I, I also got to do some of these things if God's going to really love me. And what we do is we find ourselves adding to God's law, just like the Pharisees do. 
And you do realize what, under, what happens when you add to God's law. You actually subtract from it. You're actually doing subtraction. You're, you're not doing addition. Because suddenly what you're doing by adding to it is you're trying to make it somehow attainable. And it's not. Have you ever added to God's law? Or have you ever had told others that they that they need to follow these additional things, or you've, you've placed these burdens upon other people that are, are nowhere found in Scripture. We love, both for ourselves and for others, creating all sorts of self-salvation projects, if you will. There's a moment in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, where the, the pirates, they, they've just escaped from prison, okay? Two of them. And they're in the boat, and they're paddling, they're, they're getting out of there, and one of them is sitting there reading the Bible, or trying to read the Bible, okay? And they start getting into an argument. And the argument is, the ones in there reading the Bible, saying, well, I, I think we were saved and we're now rescued because of divine providence, okay? Because of God was at work. And, and the other one says, no, I think it was just our smarts, basically. You know, it was, it was because we were being clever enough, okay? And then the pirate says to the pirate who's reading the Bible, he says, you know you can't read, as he's sitting there staring at the Bible, right? And you know it's upside down. You know, the guy's sitting there trying to read the Bible upside down, right? And what is the, how does the guy respond? I think it's very pointed. It's helpful for us, because this is the way we often think. He says, it's the Bible. You get credit for trying. You get credit for trying, right? Do you live like that so often? I mean, I guess if we think about it theologically, we know that's not right. But that's so often how we live. We so often live as though we get credit for trying. We, 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 we so often create these kind of self-salvation projects for ourselves. That we think somehow we can do it. Somehow we can pull ourselves together and, and they fail every time, don't they? John Newton put it this way. He says, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. It's the root of self-righteousness. Misunderstanding the law is the, the root of, uh, of self-righteousness. The Pharisees were trying to make the law into something that they could do to make God happy with them and acceptable and, and clean and pure before God. But that's not the purpose of the law, Okay? Now, does the law tell us anything about how we should live and how we should act? Absolutely it does. It instructs us in that way, okay? But it never saves us. It never rescues us. In fact, it does in some ways the very opposite. It points us to the need, as we've said, of something outside of ourselves to come in, to cleanse us, to wash us clean. It points us ultimately to the need for Jesus and our need for him. So the Pharisees have come, they've filed their lawsuit, if, they, if you will. And now what does Jesus do? He kind of files a countersuit against them. He's like, okay, <laughs> you say your thing, now here we go. I'm, I'm going to share with you, share with you mine. And what does he say? Look at verse 6. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, do you hear the strong words that Jesus is using? He doesn't hold back with them. Right out of the gate, what does he say? What does he call them? He calls them hypocrites. Those are strong words that Jesus is using. He's using towards these people who who champion obedience, okay? They champion like we can do this. And Jesus goes on to reveal that fatal, the fatal flaw in their thinking. And he shares kind of two things. The first one we're going to talk about more later, but the, the, the first one is this. They, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You, outwardly, they're trying to do this obedient thing, but your hearts, he's saying to them, your hearts are dead. You're completely missing it. Externally, you're trying to do all these things, but what's missing is your heart. So that's the first thing. We'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, but there's a second thing too, right? They, they pit God's commandments against the tradition of men. Look at verse 9. What does Jesus say? He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You have a fine way. You, you, use, you use the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Do you see what you're doing, Pharisees? Now, if the Pharisees had been given a moment to talk, which they weren't, um, they might have responded, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus goes right in to tell them exactly what he's talking about. He talks about this thing called Corbin. Okay? It's a little convoluted in, in some way. Well, it is convoluted because they created it. It is this man-made law that they, that they created. I'm just going to give you an example. It's kind of an outlandish example um, that over kind of takes some of the facts, but I think it's still helpful for us this morning. Imagine... A man who is very wealthy, okay? He's done very well, and he decides, you know, at my death, I want to give everything to God. I want to give everything to the temple. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to, I want all of this to be given to God. I want this to be Corbin to God. And, and so he, he devotes all of his wealth to God, okay? It was this real procedure that they kind of had outlined. And, and now there were some oddities in it in that he could still use the money for himself, Okay, but he couldn't use it for any other purposes outside of that. You know, he could still use it to live and all those things, but he couldn't use it for others. And so imagine this, this guy has done this, and then his mom comes to him. And his mom comes and he says, son, your dad is really, really sick. He can't work anymore. We, we haven't been able to get food in days. We have nothing. Can you please just give us a little bit to get by for a while until your dad gets better? And what would the son tell the Mom, he'd say, Mom, you know, I really wish I could. Don't think for a moment I don't love you. I, I really wish I could, but I'm sorry. I, I've committed everything that I have to God, so I can't give you anything. And then he says, and by the way, I've got to go. I, I got tickets for the Super Bowl tonight that he was able to purchase because he can still spend money on himself. Now, that's a little outlandish. It's a little out there. But, but hear what the Pharisees would say. Now, the Pharisees wouldn't be too excited about him going to the Super Bowl on the Sabbath probably, but when it comes to helping their mom, they'd say, absolutely, you cannot help your mom. You cannot help your parents. You can't do it because the, the vow that you've made to God is more important than the fifth commandment. This man-made rules that we've created around this thing called Corbin are more important than honoring your father and your mother. And, and Jesus places this before the, before the Pharisees, and he's saying, basically, are you crazy? 
Do you realize? Do you, do you understand what you're doing? Verse 13. Do you understand what you're doing? You're making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like this. You know what you're doing? You're going and you're creating loopholes. You create a loophole so you don't have to honor your father and mother. How ridiculous is this? And then he says, I could go on and give you other examples. Would you like me to give you other examples? Would you like me to continue? And the Pharisees just seem to have disappeared from our text. <laughs> we're not told where they, where, where they went. I don't know if they just slunk off. We're, we're not listening to this. We're out of here. I, I don't know. They just disappear. They, if you will, can't handle the truth. They can't handle it. And so Jesus, with, with the people who are still gathered there with him, he calls everybody else together and to try to instruct them, help them to understand what it is that he's been talking about, this interaction that he had with the Pharisees, and we see it beginning in verse 14. He called the people to him, and this way he says, he says, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person, there's nothing outside of a person that by, by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, evidently, the disciples didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand what's going on, so whenever he was back with his disciples, he had to explain a little more, verse 18. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and Jesus gets a little graphic, and, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. What does Jesus do here? He's zeroing in on the real problem of the Pharisees, but not just the Pharisees. Let's not just point at the Pharisees. He's zeroing in on the real problem, all of our real, most deepest problem. That is our heart. We've got to understand, whenever Jesus is talking about heart, he's talking about differently than we usually think about it. We usually think of it as either two things, like the seat of our emotions, our feelings, right? That's how we talk about it, or that thing that pumps blood, right? Um, Jesus here means that seat of everything. That seat that not just con doesn't just contains our emotions and our feelings, it certainly does that, but it also contains our will. It's the seat of who you are. And he's saying, there's something faulty, there, there's something wrong in your heart. And what he wants the Pharisees, and what he wants us all, I think, to understand, is that our problem with sin is not external to us. The problem with sin is within, is within our hearts. Now, this does not mean that we don't need to think through wisely how to consider and how to handle external things to us, okay? That doesn't mean that. But don't for a moment blame your sin on things external to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't for a moment Blame your sin on things that are external to you. John Calvin talks about the heart, and this is what he says. He says the human heart has, has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where, where falsehood lurks, is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. That's the human heart. That's our heart. That's the heart of all of us. You know, it's so much easier to think somehow the problem is out there, isn't it? That somehow the real problem is outside of us, and, and that's where sin comes from, and, and if we just fix that, then all would be good. But no, the problem is within us, okay? 
<laughs> One of the terrible jokes I make sometimes as a pastor, and I should stop and should never say it again, and maybe, well, I'm not, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to commit myself to something that will never come out of my mouth again. But that what I say sometimes is that, you know, if it wasn't for all the people, my job would be easy, okay? And that's so ridiculous because my job as a pastor is with people, and in fact, that's part of what I do enjoy is sitting with people in the midst of stuff going on in their life, right? But yeah, my job would be easy if it wasn't for people. But you see what I'm doing is I'm, I'm putting the things externally and it's, it's so backwards and it's so opposite to my calling and it reveals something about my heart within, right? We put things, we, we think somehow the, the, the fault is on these things external and what God wants, what God wants is our hearts, Okay? And don't for a moment think that God wanting our hearts is a new thing. The Pharisees should have understood it. It wasn't a new fangled idea that God, what he really wants is our hearts. If Jesus had continued with him, he could have said to those Pharisees, what I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to look on that doorpost of your house and right there on the doorpost of your house, you know what's going to be there. There's going to be that little box. I want you to take that little box off and I want you to look at the scroll inside. And right there inside that scroll, what is it going to be? But Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. No doubt that would have been on the doorpost of every Pharisee's house. And what were the Israelites called to do but to teach this to their children constantly as they went everywhere? This was to frame the way that they think about everything. What was the center of it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. God has always wanted what? Our hearts. He's always wanted our worship. And our hearts are always worshiping, aren't they? They're always worshiping something. They're always worshiping something. But so often we find our hearts worshiping things other than our great God. We find our hearts worshiping others than Jesus and other things, right? And what needs to happen is the dismantling of these things. We, those things in our heart need to be exposed. And in a sense, that's what Jesus does. He gives a bit of a diagnostic, doesn't he, in verses 21 through 22. A diagnostic that helps us to see that we are not yet free. We're not yet free of the alluring nature of sin within because we're all trapped in these things. What does he say? For from within, out of the heart of man, come what? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And we could go through every single one of these and point out how we all struggle with all of them. And you might look at some of them and say, I don't know. Remember what Jesus said about murder. The murder, is, it's not about that, <laughs> about murder itself. It's, it's about the fact that many, that we all struggle with murderous hearts that at times hate others, that take pleasure in putting others down. There's something wrong with our hearts. And we think somehow our problem is external to us. We think the problem is the bombardment of, of sexually immoral stuff all around us. And instead, the problem is the lust, the lust that's within all of our hearts. The problem is not the world around you. 
The problem is your heart and the evil desires that lurk within. You envy and you want more, right? Many of us already have those stimulus checks spent. We want more. Don't blame the world. Don't blame those things external for you, for the sin that lurks within. We could go on and we could, we could go through each of these. We don't have time this morning. And in each of these things, we can see that the problem is our heart. We, we don't need the help of the external things in our world, right? We, 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 we would sin perfectly fine if we were on a deserted island somewhere. And Jesus is coming to us as our only hope. <laughs> and he's trying to tell everybody and share with them that there is really no hope except in him. It's interesting and instructive that Jesus doesn't give the people a list of, okay, the problem is your heart, and here are the five different things that I want you to do to try to fix your heart. No, what he does, I think, is the thing that is most helpful for us. Helpful for them, helpful for us this morning, is what? That the idols of our hearts need to be deconstructed. We need to look within. We, we need those things that take up the worship of our hearts. We need those things exposed so that we might repent from them and turn from them and, and turn to worshiping Jesus. Those, those idols, they need to be displaced and we need to begin to find our only hope ultimately in Jesus. That His blood shed is our only hope. This thing that's external to us, foreign to us, coming in and washing us clean. That's what we all need. I really believe this. What Jesus is saying to us this morning, even as we, we come to the table here in a minute, Jesus is telling all of us you don't need to wash your hands. You don't need to wash your hands to come to my table. You don't need to wash your hands to enjoy fellowship with me. But yet over and over, we believe the lie that we have to, right? That somehow we can clean ourselves up enough so that we can be acceptable before him. That if I wash my hands really good, then he's going to accept me. And because of Jesus, because of his blood shed for us, there is no nagging relative telling us we got to wash our hands. He's not that nagging relative telling us we need to do that. He says, come to the table. Come to my table as you are. Don't think for a moment that before you can gather here to worship on Sunday morning, somehow you got to clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable to him. Don't think for a moment, and I think sometimes we buy this line, sometimes it's the reason why we don't spend enough time in Scripture, is, oh, I've sinned bad, and there's no way I could go to the Scripture right now. <laughs> i gotta, I got I to gotta get cleaned up a little bit before I go, or, or I can't go pray to him now. I, what I did was far too bad. No. Jesus says to you and I, come to me. Come to my table 
and I will make you clean. I will clean you up. Come to me and say, I can't do it. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need you to wash me clean of my sin. Come to him confessing and allow him to cleanse you. You don't wash your hands to come to him. He, he will wash your hands. He will wash your hands. The blood of Jesus washes our hands. And not just our hands. He he cleanses our hearts that are within. My question for all of us this morning, do you really believe it? Or do you think, well, before we come here, we got to straighten some things out in our life. No, I'm not talking about that there's no need for repentance in coming to the table. That there's no need for us to turn from our sin. But don't think for a moment that you can make yourself clean. Don't think for a moment that you can wash yourself up. Don't think for a moment that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Jesus says to us all this morning, come to me and I will make you clean. Come to me with your dirty hands and I will wash them clean. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is often a struggle to believe It is often a struggle to believe that that we don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we don't have to do some things so that we can be acceptable before you. We we, we so want to add things to the law. We, we, We so want to make there a way that we we can at least, at the very least, add to your work of salvation, if not save ourselves. Oh, Father, would you help us to to turn from it this day and turn to our Savior and truly trust in his blood shed for us. And that is by his blood alone that we can be cleansed. Oh, would you teach our hearts to truly believe the depths of the gospel, would you reveal our sick hearts and would you you help us to repent of them and, and turn from them and turn to our Savior? Would you continue your work of exposing the idols of our hearts so they might be dismantled and that Jesus would take his rightful place? We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.